We're going to be in Acts chapter 20 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, get to Acts 20. But before we dive in, I do want to mention just a couple of announcements that we wanted to make sure you didn't miss. As Chris mentioned a few minutes ago, we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of Grace this year. And uh, so next weekend is our big celebration for that. Uh, So we are not going to have any morning services at all. Instead, we're going to all have one big service with all of our campuses, as well as anybody who wants to just come celebrate with us. That's going to be at 6 p.m. in Reed Arena next Sunday night. So do not come here next Sunday morning. We will not be here. And in fact, just so you know, the marathon, the uh, Bryan College Station Marathon is happening next Sunday morning. So you may not want to leave your house, actually, if you're not in the marathon. You won't be able to really go anywhere in town. So we're all going to celebrate in the evening, 6 p.m., one service next week. Also, you have a yellow sheet if you picked up the bulletin this morning that kind of lays out our holiday schedule. On the 20th and the 27th of December, we're just going to have one service with no child care. You're welcome to come. Bring your kids. We would love to see the kids in here as well but just one service on those weeks. So those of, those of us who are here at the 11 o'clock make plans to come, if you can, early on those two uh, weeks. And then we'll be back on our normal schedule in the first week of January. All right, Acts chapter 20. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. So I want to begin just by reading verses 17 to 38 to set the stage for us this morning. So if you have a Bible, follow along, Acts 20, starting in verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching to you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that day and night for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who are with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, 
that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Uh, What we see here really in Acts 20 is sort of Paul's legacy statement. It's almost like his last will and testament to this group of elders in Ephesus, men that he had spent years with, men that he'd invested a lot of time and a lot of energy in. As I read the passage then, I started thinking about the concept of legacy. And uh, most of us have thought at some point in our lives, how do I want to be remembered? What kind of legacy would I like to leave with my life? If you have a family or are married, the odds are good that you have a will of some kind, right? And in that will, you have specified how your property and your money will be divided after your death, right? So my wife and I have a will that divvies up all of our worldly possessions, right? So each kid gets like 10 bucks and a pair of boots or something like that, right? And you guys have similar things, uh, quite likely. Uh, But what's interesting is as you look at the wills of uh, particularly extremely wealthy people, sometimes there are strange provisions in those wills. And sometimes by reading them, you get a sense of what these men and women valued, Uh, what they decided would be their legacy. So I found a few unusual will provisions uh, from over the centuries, and I thought I'd share some of them with you. Uh, A man named Jonathan Jackson, a millionaire in the 19th century, he died in 1880. He left his fortune to build a special house for cats. And uh, one man wrote of Jackson, for his part, he left his fortune to be used in the creation of a house for cats where cats would have bedrooms, a gym, a dining hall, and an auditorium where they could listen to live music. I thought, what would that be like to be that symphony called to play for a room of cats, right, who don't pay any attention to anything anyway, right? The house would also have a specially designed roof for climbing. So that was his legacy, was I want to leave a place for all of the cats, right? Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, the great political and military leader from France, he requested that when he died, they would shave his beard and give bits of his beard to all of his friends. And I thought that was unusual because here's this man who conquered Europe and is the dictator of France and could not think of a better gift to give his friends when he died than little pieces of hair from his chin, right? Uh, Fred Bauer, the inventor of the Pringles can, this is true, he just died a few years ago, Uh, he specified that he should be cremated and his ashes buried inside a Pringles can. Uh, You will never eat Pringles the same again. Uh, Mark Grunewald, one of the editors of the Iron Man and Captain America uh, comic books, he wanted to be cremated and his ashes to be mixed with the ink they used to print the comic books. So yuck, right? Uh, But what you see about each of those will provisions is that each of those men said, this is my legacy, right? My legacy is cats or a Pringles can or whatever it may be. When I go, that's what I want you to remember me for. All of us have probably thought at some point, what will I be remembered for? What's going to be my legacy? And our world, of course, would tell us that our legacy ought to be something earthly, build a big business, amass lots of money, make your name known, be famous in the realms of, you know, sports or entertainment or business or whatever it may be, build something and then people will remember you. 
But the reality is that often when those things are built, what people find is once they, of course, they don't find it once they die. Others notice once they die, it fades away. Uh, One of the most fascinating articles I've read in the last few years was an interview with Michael Jordan, who some, of course, consider the greatest basketball player in history. And the interview was several years after his retirement. And this man interviewing him kept asking probing questions and getting to the heart of this issue. Michael Jordan, once you are done with basketball now, who are you? What's your legacy? And this interview revealed the heart of a man who was deeply troubled by the fact that he didn't know and was getting older and realizing that, you know what, in 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, Michael Jordan will be at best a footnote in history. And all he accomplished and all the fame that he amassed, if he doesn't find another legacy, it's going to fade away. Yet as we look at the book of Acts, we see that Paul is convinced he can leave behind a legacy that will last forever and ever into eternity because the legacy that he leaves behind is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ and then planted in the hearts of people. Paul recognizes what the scripture will call us to recognize over and over and over again, that if we want to have an everlasting legacy, the greatest way to accomplish that through the power of God's spirit is to say what really matters, what will really last is investing in those men and women who are around me and investing in them with the good news of Jesus Christ so that we leave behind a legacy of men and women who leave behind a legacy of men and women who leave behind a legacy of men and women so that until the day Jesus comes, we are building God's kingdom rather than our own because his lasts forever. One of my seminary professors who's now passed away, uh, Howard Hendricks, he was a well-known seminary professor at DTS, and he influenced tens of thousands of future pastors and Christian leaders and missionaries all over the world so that when I went to his memorial service, there were thousands of people there to recognize this man's legacy and the lives he had poured into. And uh, he said this in an interview, I think the reason God has used me is that by his grace, the Holy Spirit has developed in me an incurable confidence in his ability to transform people. That is the same incurable confidence that the Apostle Paul had as he invested his life in other people. Not to bum you out this morning, but the reality is that if Jesus doesn't come first, all of us in this room are going to die. We will go to our grave, and in just a few years, nobody will know our names. You will be a line in a family tree my kids actually asked me this week, just randomly, said, Daddy, who was our great, 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 you know, they kind of piled up the greats. Who was our great, 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 great grandfather? I said, I have no idea. And I could look him up, but I wouldn't know his name, and yet I'm descended from him. Most of us will not be remembered, but we can leave a legacy of men and women who pour into men and women, who pour into men and women, with the good news of Jesus Christ. And the great news about that type of legacy is anybody can have an eternal legacy. Whether you are famous or obscure, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are a business person or a stay-at-home mom, 
Everybody can have that type of legacy by investing in the people in their sphere of influence because the significance and the lasting nature of our legacy doesn't depend on how many people know us, but on the depth to which we trust the Lord to influence the spheres around us. That's what we see in Acts chapter 20. We're going to see Paul talk to these Ephesian elders, men among whom he had spent three years. And what he'll lay out are the priorities, if we pay attention to this speech, the priorities, the character traits, the activities, the mindset that allowed him to leave a lasting legacy. And it's going to call us to then follow his example through the power of the Spirit. So Acts chapter 20, we've read the passage. I want to highlight a few things that uh, you can notice as you read through the passage about how Paul leaves a legacy. And the first thing that I notice as I move forward into Acts chapter 20 is this, that he cultivates humility. Paul is a man who cultivates humility. If you look at verse 19 again, he says, I was serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. Verse 24, he says, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself. Why? So that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. For Paul, even as he knows he's going to leave them forever, he says, I am not the most important piece of the puzzle here, but instead it's the grace of God and the message I've been preaching. So even as he leaves, he says, I'm not indispensable. I served among you with humility. And why can he serve you with humility? Well, here's why. Because Paul subordinates his own personal kingdom to that of Jesus Christ. And he recognizes that humility is an essential ingredient in leaving behind a lasting legacy because when we're all caught up in our own kingdom, we cannot invest in others with God's kingdom. And so he says, I served with humility. What is uh, humility? I think we tend to think of humility as sort of um, self-hatred, right? I go around and if I'm humble, I think I'm so terrible. I can't do things well, right? Actually, that self-hatred is an inverse form of, of pride itself because I'm still thinking about me. Humility instead, biblically, is the attitude that recognizes who I am before God, that I am a creation rather than the creator, that I am a sinner in need of salvation, and that I've been entrusted with the good news and the word of God so that everything I bring to the table is something that God has given. So that Romans 12, Paul will say this. He says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith, so that I don't spend my time thinking about how I can build my own influence, my own legacy, my own kingdom, but I build God's. And this is so countercultural in a world that says our first priority is what? To love ourselves, to prioritize ourselves, to have esteem for ourselves. Actually, the scripture calls us first and foremost to say, if I want to have a lasting legacy, I focus not on me, but on the kingdom of God, because his kingdom will last. This is a true story. When I was in seminary, the very first funeral I ever officiated was of a man who had no connection 
to any church. And, and what had happened was, as I was going through seminary, I told the pastor at my church that if any opportunities arose for me to help out with a wedding or a baptism or a funeral, that uh, would he please call me? I'd love to help out if they needed anything. And so he said, sure. One afternoon, uh, he calls and he says, hey, uh, would you be willing to help out with a funeral? And I said, sure, tell me the, the details. And so he says, well, the funeral home down the street called our church and said, we need a pastor to officiate this funeral uh, for a man who has no connection to a church, but they want a pastor to come in. And would you be willing to help? And I said, well, what do you mean? Would I be willing to help? And he said, would you be willing to just do it, right? So I said, all right. And I walked into this funeral home a couple hours before the ceremony was to begin. And I sat down with this man's wife, who was uh, not the mother of his children. This was his second or third wife. Some of his children were there. Some of his children had opted not to come to their father's funeral because of tension in the family. And here I am at this funeral, and we begin to go through the service order. And I ask questions about this man's life. And as we're going through the service order, I notice that among the songs they're going to play at this man's funeral is a song by Toby Keith called I Want to Talk About Me. And I, I thought, that's an odd song for a funeral. And so I said, why is this song in the order? And she said, because, uh, you know, it kind of became a joke that he was a vain man who liked to talk about himself. And so no joke, at the man's funeral, they played a song. I want to talk about me. And I thought, God, have mercy. So what do you say? Well, of course, I stood up and I presented the good news of Jesus Christ, that salvation and life comes through him. And the reality is that the only salvation from that sense that we all have, that I want to talk about, think about, be about me, the only salvation from that comes from Jesus Christ. And Paul knew that. And so he spent his life investing in the kingdom of God so that when it's all said and done, his legacy is not the Apostle Paul, actually, but it's Jesus Christ. That's humility. He was a man of great accomplishment, Paul was. In Philippians 3, he lays out all his accomplishments, right? He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He is one of the best uh, Jewish leaders of his day. He knows the law in and out, and he says, yet I consider that all to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That was what mattered. That is the humility Paul practiced that allowed him then to leave a legacy in the lives of these Ephesian elders. And as we'll see as we move forward, uh, when Paul wrote to uh, Timothy toward the end of his life, he'll say, you pass down what I taught you to other men who will pass it to other men who will pass it to other men. And it stems out of this humility he has that says, my kingdom is subordinate to God's kingdom. So Paul cultivates humility and calls us toward that as well. Secondly, he loves these men and women sincerely. Every uh, reference I have here in parentheses is essentially a reference where in this speech it talks about Paul crying, or we see Paul crying. He says, for three years I admonished you with tears. And at the end of the speech, everybody starts crying. And you read it, and initially you think, is Paul 
just kind of a crybaby, right? Is he one of these guys that just cries a lot, that's kind of, you know, in touch with uh, his crying side of life or whatever? Uh, But as you read about the life of Paul, you see, no, Paul's a pretty tough guy. He endures shipwreck and hardship and imprisonment and all kinds of loss and continues to persevere. But when he's faced with these men in whom he's invested for three years, he bursts into tears because he loves them that deeply. And the love that he had for them allowed him then to invest in their lives. And again, this is such a countercultural concept. When we think about love in our world, it is usually a shallow love that seeks to get rather than to give back. It is usually a love that says, I can stay on the surface and love you without really knowing you. Watch any Disney princess movie and you will see the world's concept of love usually, right? Within 15 to 22 hours, they're in love. That's not love. That's infatuation that goes skin deep. Some of you are familiar perhaps with the very old song by the doors that goes, hello, I love you, won't you tell me your name? Now, if you really think about that, it's pretty ridiculous, right? You, you cannot love someone if you don't know their name. Those of you who are married, imagine waking up in the morning and you roll over and you look at your spouse and you say, I love you. Can you remind me one more time of your name? That's absurd. I cannot love a person if I don't know them. Paul invests in these men and women in Ephesus and he knows them and he builds into their lives and it's a slow process. Love takes time. And this is why I'd say uh, whether you are uh, a person who has a huge influence, that there are lots of people that know you or, or a small influence, the reality is you only have time to really love a certain group of people. That sphere of influence that God has called you to most closely. That's why Jesus, we see that he has 12 disciples and he has three that he's the closest with. And yes, he influences the masses, but the greatest impact that he has is through the love that he pours into the lives of these few men. It may be that your primary sphere of influence right now is, you're a student, your primary sphere of influence is your roommates and a few other people, maybe your family. Maybe that uh, your primary sphere of influence, uh, you're a mom or a dad, your primary sphere of influence right now is, is little people that uh, most of your relationship involves wiping, right? You, you wipe noses, you wipe bottoms, you wipe all day long, you wipe messes. Your love for them is expressed through wiping stuff. And it may be that that is at this moment in time one of the most eternally impactful things you can do to leave a legacy on their lives so they see the humility and the love of Jesus. At work, in your neighborhood, you may feel, you may question, do I have a big influence? Paul was never concerned. Jesus was never concerned in their earthly ministry, primarily withdrawing large crowds. They were primarily concerned with investing in those close to them deeply and sincerely. And so we see the example of Paul that he loves these men and women and in the slow, patient way of Jesus builds into their lives. And I wonder if you and I are willing to do that work in a very hurried and busy world that wants us simply to stand at a distance. I mentioned Howard Hendricks a few minutes ago. He had a saying that he would sometimes say to us in class, he would say, you impress people from a distance, but you impact them up close. 
because it's up close where Paul is able to exhort and challenge and draw boundaries and tell people this is what God wants, this is what God does not want, this is who God wants you to be, this is what he's called you to. That is the love of Jesus Christ, and that is the type of love that leaves an impact. So he loves sincerely. Cultivate humility, loves sincerely. Thirdly, he perseveres through trials. Again, in verse 19, he says, I serve with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. And then in verses 22 to 23, he talks about how he's headed to Jerusalem and he knows he's going to experience even more trials, even more situations that will require perseverance. Uh, If you read what he did in Ephesus, if you look at chapter 19 and you read some of what Paul did in Ephesus, you'll find that he didn't have an easy time there. Uh, He was threatened with death by those who worshipped the goddess of the Ephesians, Artemis, because uh, he was taking away from their income. As people were trusting Christ, they weren't buying little idols of Artemis anymore. And so the craftsmen wanted to kill him. He went through all kinds of trials in Ephesus, and yet he stayed the course for three years, day in and day out, persevering and preaching the gospel through the power of the Spirit. And that is a characteristic we see in the life of Paul over and over and over again, that he is willing to go until Jesus returns or until he is dead to preach the gospel of Jesus. And nothing will deter him because he believes firmly in the truth that Jesus died and rose again, and that that is the hope of eternal life. So he perseveres. Most of us know what it's like to bump up against obstacles and want to quit or to quit. The first time that I can remember bumping up against what seemed and was actually an insurmountable obstacle was when I was about eight years old and my brother and I tried to dig a hole starting in our backyard to China, right? We were going to core through the earth and pop up on the other side of the world, right? So we grabbed a couple of shovels and we began to dig. And as we began to dig, we realized it took us a long time just to make a relatively small hole. So we adjusted our goal. We thought we cannot get to China. So what we'll do is we will build an underground hangout place for ourselves, like a little cave where we'll bring in sofas and TVs and all of these things. And we'll have like a little hobbit hole of our own, an underground clubhouse. So we began to dig throughout the morning and even up to lunchtime and started in the afternoon and realized our hole was only about this deep. And we thought, we're not going to make it. So let's go do something else, right? And we dropped the shovels and we left this hole in my parents' backyard that may still be there today. I really don't know. When the tough got going, what happened? The tough, we left. We gave up. Many of us find that life poses obstacles that tempt us to quit, to say walking with the Lord is difficult. When I was serving as the college pastor at Grace, one of the realities, sad realities that I would sometimes present students with was this, that probably at least a third of those in the room among the students would not be walking with the Lord in five or 10 or 15 years. Because all of that enthusiasm and excitement that surrounds you, particularly at a school like A&M, where a lot of your friends are walking with the Lord and going to church and reading the scripture and worshiping with you, all that enthusiasm gives way sometimes after you graduate to the day after day, month after month, year after year, trials of life in your marriage, in parenting, in finances, in knowing the Lord, and sometimes you feel distant from him and it's difficult. And so a percentage will just say it's not worth it anymore and walk away. And for all of us, 
whether we're 18 or whether we're 80, we face the reality that that shadow still could chase us down. We face the reality that apart from the power of the Spirit, we're going to be tempted to quit. Paul says, no, I will keep going in the slow, patient way of Jesus day after day. Some of you perhaps are runners. I have periodically uh, been a mediocre to poor runner, right? So I will uh, pick up running for a while and I'll get kind of good at it. And then I'll remember why I didn't like running in the first place. And I'll kind of back off from it and then pick it up again. But what I found is uh, when I do my best at running, it's usually when I'm able to just focus on going the next few paces or kind of the next short distance, right? So as I begin, I don't think I have to make it for two to four to five miles or whatever it may be, because that will bring despair deep into my soul, right? So what I do is I think I just got to go to the next street and then the next street. And then when that gets tough, I go just the next step and the next step and the next step. And that is the perseverance that Paul's example calls us to. The next moment, the next day, I lean on the Spirit of God and say, help me today to love those in my sphere of influence, to cultivate the humility you want me to cultivate, to know you deeply right now in this moment. That's why Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. That, has, that day has enough trouble of its own, and you know it does. Trust him for today. And that is the secret to endurance. And so Paul endures, and he's able to plant a legacy of endurance through his love, through his humility, through his perseverance, so that toward the end of his life, he will say this to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He doesn't talk here about how big his impact was or how biggest splash he made. You know what he says? Some of the last words he says is, you know what? I finished. I kept running. And he'll finish until the day Jesus calls him home. So his perseverance allows him to leave a lasting legacy because he doesn't give up. And lastly, he preaches the word of God. He centers all of his ministry, all of his preaching around the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verses 20 to 21. I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, the foundation of my ministry was that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. If you're here and you don't know God through Jesus Christ, you need to know that Paul actually says that the way he left any legacy that would last is only because he knew Jesus who is eternal and whose kingdom will last forever. And if you have not trusted in Jesus for forgiveness of sins and eternal life, you need to know that is not only the way to eternal life, but the only way to have a life that has lasting impact because people will forget our names. And Paul says that was central, was the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verses 25, verse 25, Behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Verse 31, therefore being, be on the alert, remembering that day and night for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. <coughs> Paul recognized that the legacy he could leave was to implant the word of God 
and the gospel of Jesus Christ in the hearts of those right around him. To know God's word deeply, to allow it to transform him, what he said, what he did, and then to invest it in others. I first came to Grace as a freshman in college uh, more than two decades ago, and I was uh, sitting you know, in the back. Actually, in those days, our college auditorium in Anderson was the only building, and it was just packed full every week. So I normally stood at the back because they asked us to so others could sit down. And I'll admit that, and this sounds terrible, when I entered into college and came into Grace, I had grown up in the church, and I kind of thought I knew all there was to really know about the Bible. I had heard all the stories. I had heard a thousand sermons. I'd been to Sunday school. I'd done Bible studies. I'd been, I was one of those kids that I just thought, I don't know what else I'm going to learn here. And looking back, I realize it sounds terribly arrogant, but it's just where I was. But then what happened is I came into contact with some people, some older people who had invested more years than I had in really knowing the Word of God, who, who took me and, and, by God's grace, didn't just see an arrogant kid, but said, there's so much more. Taught me how to study the Scripture deeply. Taught me how to know it on a deeper level. And all of a sudden, it was like the Word of God began to speak to my heart things that I had never seen before in all of my vast 18 years of experience. And I realized I have a lifetime of growth in the Word of God. And what happened is what Paul described, or what the author of Hebrews describes here in chapter 4. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart so that the Word of God opens us up and reveals those areas of inadequacy and weakness and then challenges us to transform and then to encourage others to transform. So that as I read, for example, Galatians chapter 5 and I read about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and I read that and I think, man, I got none of that at least not to the degree that I should. And the Word of God begins to do its work in our lives so that then the words we speak and the things we do and our interactions with others become filled with the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And so what we're able to do then is invest the Word of God in others so that even in those moments where it seems like we're engaged in insignificant, slow, obscure work, of loving other people, one by one. We have opportunities to do so through the power of God's Spirit with the Word of God implanted in our hearts, and then we leave that legacy implanted in the hearts of others, whether it's our kids or our coworkers or our neighbors or our roommates or those men and women even sitting in this room with us this morning. So that we, as Paul says, train faithful men and women who train faithful men and women who train faithful men and women. And that legacy continues day after day, year after year, until Jesus returns. We want to leave a lasting legacy. It's not about making a big splash, right? but it's about looking around and saying, who is in my sphere of influence that God may be calling me to share the love of Jesus and invest in with the word of God? We're about to celebrate communion here. In a moment, the men are going to begin to prepare. And as they 
begin to prepare, there are a couple of questions that I want us to focus on. Because communion really is an opportunity for us to look at the foundation of our faith that Jesus died for us and rose again. And that that foundation is the basis from which we serve, the basis from which we will leave a legacy. And as we think about that, a couple of questions for us to focus on. First of all, who is in your sphere of influence? Whether it's small or large, you may have two names or you may have 50 names. Who is in your sphere of influence that you say, those men and women God has placed in my life so that I can leave a legacy in theirs? And then secondly, not only who is in your sphere of influence, but how can you begin to invest in those men and women with the gospel of Jesus Christ? What steps can you take to leave a legacy for the gospel? Through prayer, through the power of the Spirit, through the day-by-day slow work of loving others and knowing his word and investing in others with it. Can we look around and say, you know what? My my goal is not to make my name known. My goal is not to be the most well-known person in town. My goal is not to build my little kingdom or my thing, but my goal is to leave a legacy for Jesus Christ through the power of his word and the truth of the gospel. So as we prepare for communion, let's meditate on these concepts. First Corinthians 11, verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's respond in worship. Father, we do confess that we need you. We need you to be able to know you through Jesus. We need you just to breathe. We need you to be able to do your work. We pray that we would daily, moment by moment, rely on the Spirit of God to leave a legacy that will last for eternity through your power and your grace. We thank you for this time, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.